Lawyers always need to be on top of their game, or at least appear to be. It can feel overwhelming to recognize or admit when we aren't, and even harder to reach out and get help. Welcome to Sidebar, brought to you by North Carolina's Lawyer Assistance Program, where lawyers help lawyers by sharing their experience, strength, and hope as they delve into their personal journeys of recovery. Hi, I'm Candace Hoffman, the field coordinator with LAB, and I'm excited to be here today with one of our volunteers who's written an incredible couple of articles called A Defense Attorney's Perspective. We will link these in the show notes, and we have an extra bonus of things to talk about today because she's also written a lot of incredible books, two of which I'd love to talk about on the podcast today uh, called Surrender and Amends, and we will link that information as well. Rita, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I love LAP. We love having you here. We'll start first kind of talking about your article because there was so much in there. Obviously, you're an incredible writer because it was written in a way that draws you in. One sentence really stood out to me because of the imagery and the tension it represented. It just it so perfectly spelled it out for me when you said, I can see how this job I love not only fueled the depression, but fed my wounded ego in ways that prevented me from asking for help. And when I was reading that sentence, I thought about that act of empowering that shadow or darker part of our natures, how the job can fuel that, and then also blocking you from getting to that solution. And you can feel the physical tension in that sentence. And I was wondering if you would talk about how the job was feeding that wounded ego. I'll start by saying that that's in retrospect, of course, when I was in the midst of 20 years of being a trial lawyer. Well, I actually tried cases, civil cases, too, but 20 years of being a public defender and then another 10 years of defending clients on my own. When I was in the midst of it, I don't know that I had I either didn't take the time for that introspection I think, as I say, you get into, or at least I got into, this pride place. I was very proud of being a trial lawyer. And in one of my books in the back, I say that I suffered from stage fright, very serious stage fright early in my life and early in my legal career. So I had overcome that stage fright, but I had also overcome a reluctance to ever appear in a courtroom. When I went to law school, I had no intention of ever being in a courtroom. I was sort of in this, I don't want to say cult, but trial lawyers are few in number. Most lawyers never darken the door of a courtroom. And trial lawyers think that we're the creme de la creme. And I had colleagues whom I loved and admired who were excellent trial lawyers. And to be in that company, to be in that group, I was just so proud of that. And I didn't stop really to think, I mean, I knew the toll it was taking, but I didn't address the toll it was taking. And when I had an opportunity to reflect on that, I really believe that my ego didn't want to let that go. I didn't want to let go of that favored status as I saw it to reach out for help. So I didn't for many years. 
I can so relate to that. One, going to law school, I knew that I would never see the inside of a courtroom. So I never took moot court or mock trial. And then I ended up litigating my entire career. <laughs> but it is so interesting, even when we're not conscious of it, I think that that pride of like, I've done something incredibly hard. Even if I feel like an imposter sometimes, I've done something so incredibly hard and I want to make sure other people know. And I have to admit, even since coming into this job, when a lot of people ask me what I do, and I love this job so much, would not want to do anything else. I do hear myself sometimes say, well, I litigated for seven years. Like why they need to know that? It's so interesting. Part of it, some is, you know, to get attorneys to trust me, like I've been there with you, but I, I really feel that that part of the ego definitely gets fed by that. I, I guess I'm probably even prouder of having been a defense attorney because that's even harder in my view. But yeah, the ego was still alive and active. Well, that's interesting. I, I really like that part of your article too, because I've never been a defense attorney, but that we're already in a unique profession where we're adversarial in nature. We're pitted against someone else. And then as a defense attorney, you were highlighting the fact that you're pitted against your clients sometimes. Not that you're pitted against them, but that they inherently come in not just so excited to see you and <laughs> trusting you, but you're having to fight to get your client to believe in you and to work with you to be able to help them. So you're having adversarial relationships on every level of your job. Can you talk about that some? I think that's one of the things that makes being a public defender so very hard is that the clients, the client's family, the client's friends, everybody thinks they've gotten a bum deal if they get a public defender. And, you know, the D.C. Public Defender Service has an excellent reputation, as does the federal defender nationwide. But the reality is people go by what they hear on the street. They go by the experiences of their families and friends. And they go by some of their own past experiences, being appointed lawyers to represent them who didn't do a good job. And so it's like you start in this big hole. And that's one another reason the job was so very hard because you can't shirk relationship building and relationship building takes time you have to go to the jail if your clients locked up you have to go frequently <laughs> you have to make sure you you go over all the discovery you just have to work doubly hard i think because your client starts out in that position of mistrust and there's no way you're going to fix it except by building a relationship. And clients, I believe, are seriously damaged if they don't trust you enough to listen to your legal advice. Because sometimes it's the, it's the difference between a very long time in prison and a more favorable outcome. And that seems like, I'm sure to the outside world, such an easy thing to do. Like, of course, I need to trust my lawyer so I can get a good outcome. But I can understand what you're talking about the, you know, the years of different messaging, maybe these clients have gotten from their peers, and then going into this situation, how hard it would be 
to build that relationship when you have so many years and so much ingrained distrust in those clients? And the reality is there's some bad lawyers out there. Sure. <laughs> I mean, there's some very, very good ones and very dedicated ones doing indigent criminal defense, but there's some people who ought not. And they make it hard for the rest of us. Sure. And especially if you're talking about it, if we maybe are not in a serene, peaceful, self-actualized state when we're doing this job, and we've got people who are cutting into our already damaged and wounded ego, that just being an, another exacerbating factor. It's hard not to get defensive. Mm-hmm. And, and then it's hard not to work, not to try proving yourself, too. And the proving yourself, for sure. You talked about another thing I definitely relate to, trying to control all of these factors that are outside of your control. And I think there is no better place to bang your head against a wall than litigation, trying to control things. Because, you know, certainly in the beginning of my career, I had this delusion thought that I could somehow control the outcome. And my life got so much better when I figured out where my little place was, the things that I could affect the control over and the ability to let go of those things I didn't have control over. But it's incredibly hard to do. What was your relationship with figuring out that balance? I credit LAP with that and my years in LAP and my years in Al-Anon. I think it took all of that work from it, for it to finally sink in with me that I wasn't ultimately responsible for the outcome as long as I had done my part. And if I had done my part, I just had to let that go because otherwise I took so much on myself that I was paralyzing myself. Definitely. And it's hard to litigate in a paralyzed state. <laughs> yeah. That didn't mean when the jury came back with an adverse verdict, I wasn't kicking myself a little bit. Of course, <laughs> so. of course. So how did you get involved with LAP? I had just come back from DC. I took a year off and I had just started back to practicing, reactivated my North Carolina law license. And I had to have a CL, some CLE credits. So I went to a CLE and there was a session there uh, Don Carroll was head of LAP at the time. And so so I was sitting there thinking about a friend of mine who had a host of problems. And I thought, oh, I should tell her about LAP. <laughs> and then a lightning bolt said, you need to go to the meetings. <laughs> I mean, yeah, tell her, but go yourself. And I was in a really bad place at that point. I'd made some terrible personal decisions, terrible financial decisions. It was really the low point of my life, I think. I got in touch with Don and I started going to meetings. And Al-Anon and LAP. And had you had any experience with Al-Anon before that? I think maybe many years ago, I had tried to go to a meeting, but I hadn't stuck with it. Don said, go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I don't think I made 90, but I made a lot. I was serious about it this time. I guess the level of pain was higher. Pain is such a powerful motivator. And I imagine a lot harder to recognize sometimes when you need to get help on the Al-Anon side because you don't have some of those 
very real markers that people identify, not that they're the only reasons to go to AA or to get in in recovery from substance use, but you don't have the DUIs, the losing of the house. And you certainly can have that around you, but it can be a lot harder, I'm sure, to recognize. So how, how did you realize that that was where you needed to go? I think in part, I relied on, on advice, like Don's advice. And, but I knew it, I knew it was true the minute I heard it because the depths of my despair were essentially brought on by enabling. And I had enabled to the point that I had really seriously harmed myself financially and emotionally. I think it was really just, I recognized the bottom when I saw it. Enabling can be so destructive, but so hard for people to understand what that looks like. Can you tell me what did it look like in your life? Well, I don't mind saying this out loud. Everybody that I care about knows that my uh, younger brother, my only brother, had a lifelong struggle with addiction. And I tried not to give him money. I tried not to clean up his messes, but my bottom line was I wasn't going to see him homeless. I wasn't going to see him hungry. And that just spiraled. Over those 30 years, I fought with myself. It's not that I just gave in. I tried to keep from doing things that I knew in the end weren't going to help him. But when you love somebody so much, it's just so hard to see them suffer. And if you think you can ameliorate that in any way. You know, I just took chances, ended up essentially bankrupt. What did the taking chances, what kind of effect did that have on you? We're here financially, but emotionally, what did it feel like? It's that it's the despair time and again, you get your hopes up, you hope, oh, maybe this time he'll really get clean and stay clean. Maybe this time he'll be healthy. Maybe this time this will work. Well, it never did. And it's over and over and over again, seeing him fail and and feeling that failure yourself, knowing that you've done tons of money and all of this, you know, your savings basically into this venture. And it's not going to yield. It's not going to yield the results you wanted. And that part of it's control. You know, you think you can control how somebody else behaves and you can't. One of those Things that are outside our hula hoop, as we say in the recovery world, are, you know, outside of our control can be a lot easier to reach out and try to do something about versus turning internally and saying, how can I get help for myself? So when you started getting help and you went to LAP and you started going to Al-Anon, what happened in your life? It's not an overnight transition or transformation, but the principles really do sink in. And you start, I could start each time I was faced with a choice about what to do. I could say, okay, why am I doing this? And is this what I should do? And I got much better at setting boundaries. That's really what it was. I just got much better at setting boundaries and I got better at self-care. That's the other thing. I didn't think I had to put my needs second to someone else's. How did your law practice change after you started practicing those principles? 
practiced another 10 years after getting initially involved in LIP and, and in Al-Anon, I think I was less likely to hold myself responsible for the outcome. And I did start working in a more sensible way. I didn't think I had to spend, you know, 90 hours a week working or 80 hours a week working. I did start trying to have a, a more of a life. How did going to the LAP support groups enhance your practice or your self-care? I could not put into words how important those relationships are and were because you're struggling alongside such good, decent people. And regardless of why they're there, with, you know, what their issue was that brought them there, it's just being a part of that support network where you cheer their successes and they cheer yours and you commiserate. It really is such a close-knit support group, and implicit and absolute trust. And everybody there has your ultimate good in mind. And that's healing in itself, I think. Just being a, immersing yourself in that environment is healing, I think. And I hear you talk about feeling safe enough to be vulnerable and to share things that we might be either ashamed of or just struggling with. And I think that is a, one of the really big, powerful things that comes from the lap support groups. I had somebody in the program, I was talking about my kid, like tongue in cheek about how, quote unquote, confident they are, how sassy and crazy and whatever they could be. And she said, what I hear is that they live in a safe environment where they feel like they could, you know, expose all the good and the bad. And I loved that thought. And I, I really connect that to where I hear you talk about the lap support groups of just that feeling of safety and that we do have each other's backs to open up completely and let that sunlight of the solution in. I don't remember anybody saying, well, you need to do that or you need to do this because the support is there. You can come to those determinations on your own. I just can't say enough good about those years in the meetings. Really, I think that's important too, the fact that we share our experience and there's no judgment or there are no rules. We're not telling each other what to do because lawyers, myself included, tend to not like that. <laughs> tend to not like to be told what to do. After attending LAP and getting involved in the program, you started writing or you started a writing career before you got involved with LAP? I started trying to write while I was still in D.C. And I, I got a, a rough draft of one book, I think. It was pretty terrible. But I put it aside and I didn't do anything else with it until I retired from the Federal Defender I say I started working again I mean, a year later. So I, that retirement didn't last long, that particular one. But I really started writing in 2011 because I had a stroke, a couple of strokes and open heart surgery. So uh, I was in a physical recovery mode and it helped. I had the time. I stopped practicing altogether. And I had the time then to really devote to my writing. Your writing's incredible. And I know you have several different series, or at least another series of books. But I read 
the two that you wrote, Surrender and Amend, they're incredible mysteries on one level. But I love the fact that you've incorporated so much of the recovery world in such an authentic way. I know recovery and 12-step programs are portrayed a lot in movies and books, but this felt so real when you described the meetings, when you spelled out the serenity prayer and how a person talks to their sponsor. And I know it's a fictional story, but I really loved the authenticity of recovery that I saw in there. That makes me very happy because I I started this series. The first series I had was set in Washington, D.C., and I'd been away from D.C. for a while, and I didn't really have the, uh, you know, I had to get a map out to look which way the streets went and that kind of thing. <laughs> I said, oh, no, I can't be doing that. So I started this series, and I thought, what else do I know about really well that I think I could write about? And I said, I know about addiction. I've never been addicted myself, but struggling alongside my brother for 30 years. I knew, and being, of course, in 12-step programs, I wanted to do it, but I wanted to do it in a positive way. I wanted people to see the strength that it takes to ask for help and the hope that people have in recovery that I wanted people to know about that and to experience that through my characters. I'm really grateful that you found you found that to be true. Definitely. And the portrayal of LAP as well. Can you talk a little bit about how your experience with LAP informed your characters and the role LAP plays in your novels? Cass, Cassandra, who's my protagonist in this series, is active in LAP. And when she needs to bring someone else on board to help her in her cases, she reaches out to LAP. But one of my favorite parts of the story is that she tells about her own recovery and how friends and lap basically intervened, did an intervention and got her. She was at a low point in her life, too. And that was the help she needed at the time she needed it, how she stayed consistently involved. And we know that that means as a peer counselor where you're donating your time to give back for the incredible help you've received. I wanted to highlight that. And I put in the back of the book, first book, I didn't put it in the second one because I didn't want to sound preachy. And it was in the first one, but I put that there are LAP groups in 50 states and where you could find one, that there are Al-Anon groups in 50 states and around the world and AA in every state and around the world. And I put the web addresses because I thought, you know, maybe that'll matter to somebody. Because you never know. You can be in and around recovery for a long time and you don't know what is going to be the impetus where, you know, the person reading that book, whatever reason, that's the day they decide to reach out for help. So I think that's really great that you put that information in the back of the book. And when you're talking about too highlighting cast getting help, I love that you put that in there because I think it really helps to demystify what that looks like. I think it can sound really scary to a lot of people to be intervened upon instead of it's a group of people who care about you trying to get the help you need. And once she gets that help, how well balanced and full her life is in these novels. And that part is not fictional. You know, that that happens to all of our, a lot of our volunteers. 
That's exactly what I wanted to show. I mean, I know there are books out there that show the desolation and the and the, the trauma and the damage to people's lives. But I wanted to show that hopeful side because I've seen it over and over and over again. And I wanted though to show about LAP that it was there for her and she is in turn being there for other people. Partner <laughs> who needed a little nudge. <laughs> so, But that's how it worked. She got into recovery and her life is not vanilla monotonous you know, drudge. She has really exciting. She gets locked up in jail for a week, you know? She goes on all these adventures. And though I don't really want to chase any murders currently, I like that our lives are so full once we get into recovery. And you show that. She leads an interesting, full, very textured life. She has relationships. I love that part too, that she's she's restored to her family. She's restored to her friends. And she says that she believes she would have either died or lost her law license if she had continued on the road she was going before the intervention. But she has a wonderful relationship with her mother and stepfather, a wonderful relationship with her partner and friends. And of course, she has a lot of animals that she has great relationships with. I love the pigs. And I love the pigs, too. I don't do a lot of rescue hands-on anymore, though I have for many, many years, but that's a passion, so I had to put it in. And I learned a new word, porcine? Porcine, yeah. I had to look it up. I, I didn't just know. I had <laughs> to look it up. <laughs> I love it, because we have a word of the day calendar here with my kids, so I had to add that to the list. Oh, Everybody good. was excited. There's a lot in the books and I want people to read them. So I definitely don't want to talk about them too much and give away too much. But the first book is entitled Surrender. And that's really correlated with step one when we come into the program. Was that an intentional decision to start at step one with these books? I'm not going to write 12 books. I'm working, <laughs> on the, working on the third one in this series, and I'm kind of thinking that might be the last one in the series, though I'm not sure, you know, it depends on what the characters do, I guess. But I wanted all of them to have some a connotation with the 12 steps. Yes. Well, if you're involved in the 12-step program or if you've heard about it, I think a lot of people know what making amends involves, at least on a surface level. But I loved And this one that, you know, she had made her amends. She had done step eight and nine. But as you get and stay sober and you stay in recovery, you're that onion and you keep peeling back the layers. And we always say more will be revealed. And she discovers, you know, there's an amends that she really hasn't dealt with yet. And, you know, they they come about 10, 20 years into the program. And we get to do further work and we get to get to that, you know, deeper level of figuring out what our authentic self is. And I love that it dealt with that because, you know, that's not the cookie cutter. You go through the 12 steps and you're done and you deal with amends one time. It's that continuing process. And I love that that really unfolded in the book. Did you have a, a reasoning behind doing that? I found amends to be among the most powerfully healing tools, not just 
facing somebody and saying, I'm sorry, but truly going through the process of how do I try to make this right? And if I can't make it right with the person I actually harmed, can I make it right in some other context so that I can know that I did my best to confront a wrong and remedy it as I could? I don't see her as being perfect. I, I don't want her to be perfect. I want her to have all the foibles that the rest of us have. It was really important to me that she make amends, and it was important to me that some more minor characters make amends, too. I really like the fact that one of the most powerful amends was to herself. That we learned that. It's not, it's not intuitive, I don't think. I don't think I mean, so, either, because this was a person and a character you know, that had been in the program for a long time and been doing the work. And, you know, years later, this occurs to her that she hasn't dealt with this huge thing from her past. And we can be like that a lot. We have blinders on until something happens. We're exposed to another person, a relationship. We just get to that deeper level of recovery where we can see things that we physically couldn't see in our first few years of recovery. I like the fact that her sponsor helped her to do that. And I like the fact that she still has a sponsor 20 years into recovery. I mean, to me, that's critically important. I the agree. role of sponsors in our recovery. I agree. Because no matter how many years we stay in recovery, we're still trapped in our own perspectives. You know, I cannot see outside of myself. And I think that's the really cool thing that we get to do for each other is look at someone else's behaviors, their problems with them and say like, hey, I see this pattern here of character defects, of things that you keep throwing obstacles in your own way. And the person's not able to see that ourselves or the other person until we have that kind of outside perspective that can say, yeah, did this occur to you? And a lot of times it hasn't. And in my experience, a sponsor is as integral a part of the process as the meetings, because we can tell sponsors things we won't even share in the meeting with the group at large. So, yeah, I like the sponsor I created for her. I do, too. I like her name, too. <laughs> I'm a big name person. Before I keep going, is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you want to talk about? I hope people who are listening will see that I love my characters and I love I love their recovery. And our stories aren't all successful. Sometimes we have we have our own lapses and friends of ours have lapses, but I don't think that takes away from the strength and the power of the process. I think that's true and in and really important for people to hear is that relapse is a part of some people's recovery and hopefully they make it back to the program. And when they do, I, I don't believe a way you've, you've thrown away your earlier recovery. I think, you know, that's the great thing about the program is that we just welcome people back wherever they are and it makes it easier for people to come back knowing there's not a lot of shame and judgment. It's just people who want the best for you. All the hard work of recovery that you've done in the past, it's still there. You can still draw on it. I think that, you know, our careers, like our paths in recovery, they're not these just 
straight upward vertical ascents. It's it's up and down, and knowing that's part of the process, we don't have to beat up ourselves so much when we're in one of those low points. We just know that this will pass. I'm going to rise again. We are shedding that shame that was so much a part of our ingrained nature. Shame is so incredibly powerful. And I know you addressed that with your main character too. Shame being part of that amends that she has to make to herself. And it's incredible the power that shame can have on us, even years into recovery. Because we can be used to, you know, being in that state of active addiction or active enabling, whatever it is, we can kind of revert back there if we're not paying attention or not in the middle of the program and let that shame get a hold of us. If we're getting that we're in a place of recovery, we're not doing anything wrong, we make mistakes. But yeah, that shame can be an incredibly powerful feeling. In my own life, I think my depression was fueled in in part by shame. Shame about the mistakes I'd made in the past and misjudgments, wrong moves, wrong turns. Looking back, when do you think you first started to deal with depression? It started probably when I was in college, at at least that early. But when I started to deal with it is when I was forced to, because I, you know, as I said, bottomed out. But I just suppressed it and, and, you know, I worked through it. I was a workaholic. I just worked through it. I remember when my marriage ended, second marriage, I've been married twice. <laughs> when that ended, I I get to the office at five o'clock in the morning. That was how I would deal with it. I'd just be there earlier than anybody else, stay later than anybody else, and just work all the time. Because if I worked, I didn't have to think mm-hmm. about what was going on in my life. And That was a drug for me, I think. Sure. Work is something tangible where you can't, you know, maybe save that relationship or if that's gone, this is something right in front of you that you can have some sort of control over. I can see that being very attractive. When you first started encountering depression, what effects did it have on you in college and beyond? I would make choices hoping that that they would make me happy Mm -hmm. instead of trying to delve into why I was not happy, why I was at some points profoundly unhappy. And after you got involved with LAP, what effect did it have at all on experiencing that depression or how you treated it? Uh, I have said about LAP and about Al-Anon, I do not know how the programs work. I could not tell you scientifically, I could not give an explanation for how they work. But immersing myself in that treatment environment, and I did start therapy too at the suggestion of, I think it was Don's suggestion, but anyway, but just being immersed in that healing environment it works. It starts to work. And I experienced that 
I can't explain it. But I just started to feel better. More often, I felt better. And so I saw myself healing. I'm so glad that you are part of LAP. You bring a lot to it. I'm so glad you've taken the time to talk with us today. And I hope you'll keep writing because I want to keep reading. Thank you for joining us at the sidebar. If this is your first time, we encourage you to listen to another episode or two, subscribe to our newsletter, and peruse the resources at www.nclap.org. And if you know a lawyer who could use a hand, please share this episode with them today. Remember, at Sidebar, you are not alone. In fact, you are in quite good company.